uh, we're going to get into our sermon for today and uh, if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we will be looking today. So we're beginning a new series and this series is going to go for the next 13 weeks uh, and this is a, a comprehensive story of the life of Christ and we're basing it out of Matthew's Gospel and we're going to each week just go through a little section of Matthew and kind of trace the life of Jesus right from his birth this week um, up to the end, Matthew 28. So if you're um, joining us for the first time, we welcome you. We um, did uh, do some advertising for this series, The Story of Jesus, The Gospel According to Matthew. Um, and for our members and for anyone else who is interested, we're actually going to be um, giving out these devotional booklets. So we've made up these devotional booklets to help uh, people to study along. And essentially it's a 90-day booklet. It takes you from today up until 90 days time and each day you'll have a reading uh, about 10 verses or so you'll have a couple of uh, comments and questions uh, based on the reading that you've had and then you'll have some space to make some notes for yourself and to put um, some prayer requests down the bottom or or maybe um, put some answers to the questions that we have we're going to be um, giving that out to our members but if you would like we're also going to be sending out some copies of this um, to uh, people who, who might want to follow along and if you're going to be housebound and you want uh, some, some way of connecting you to the church you might be interested in us sending you a um, devotional book so just send us your details and we will try to um, send that out to you this week we're starting in Matthew chapter 2 so we're starting in Matthew chapter 2 which means that we are going to skip the, the genealogy um, the list of Jesus' ancestors that Matthew gives and we are also skipping the actual birth of Christ and we're skipping to just after the birth of Christ the next event that Matthew records and as we go through this series I'm not going to go through every single word or phrase or story of Jesus I'm just going to pick out the major ones that kind of tell you the, the trajectory of Jesus' life and um, what Matthew is trying to get you to understand about who Jesus was. So Matthew chapter 2, for the kids who are following along, um, this is the story of the wise men coming to give Jesus gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So if you've got that children's worksheet that you're following along with um, in the place where you might want to draw a picture you can maybe draw a picture of the wise men coming to Jesus in the in the manger baby Jesus in the manger and giving him gifts and you can draw a cranky King Herod as well if you if you're able to and please follow along and, and make notes as you're able to okay let's get straight into it in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 it says this now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, came from, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So this is a, a story about Jesus when he was just a baby. Uh, we're not quite sure whether this was when he was very young or maybe when he was a couple of years old, um, but it was when he was still a, a, a child. And uh, Matthew wants to tell us something very significant that happened to him after he was born in Bethlehem. So Herod is sitting on the throne, this mean, nasty figure called Herod. He's an opportunistic military leader who happened to be king of the Jews in those days. 
and Herod is sitting in, in uh, on his throne, watching over his people, and suddenly these people come from a, a faraway place. Now, people often look at the, the stories about Jesus and oftentimes they focus on the wrong question. Sometimes people ask, you know, where did they come from in the east? Was it in Babylon or was it further east? Was it somewhere in Asia, maybe China? Was it Thailand that they came from? That's not Matthew's point. He's not giving you a, a geographical lesson on where people were coming from. So we don't need to worry about that. People also ask the question of, you know, they saw a star and, and what was that star? People have tried to work out was that a comet that they saw? That they saw? Was it a, a planetary conjunction that they saw, or was it a nova or a supernova? They've tried to um, look at the skies and try to determine what the bright star was that they might have seen. That's not the point of the story. Matthew's not giving you a lesson in astronomy. He's trying to get you to understand something about Jesus rather than get you to understand something about supernovas. So all of those questions kind of miss the point. I'm just going to push those aside and cut through to what Jesus is really talking about, which is the wise men coming to see the new king. So the wise men come from the east. They come to Jerusalem. And in Matthew 2 and verse 2 it says, They said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So they march on into town and King Herod is sitting on the throne and they say, where's the new king that's just been born? Because we want to worship him. Uh, I've, I've never met the queen. I've never met the prime minister or president or, or anyone uh, in a significant leadership position. But I do know this one thing. The etiquette when you meet a head of state is that you don't ask where their successor is. You obviously ask them, you know, you're, you're doing such a great job. How do you be such a great ruler? How, how come you're the best prime minister of all time? You, you flatter them with these words. You don't come marching into Scott Morrison's office and ask, I hear that your successor is around. I hear that there's a new guy who's about to take your job. I'd like to meet him instead of meeting you. So these wise men, perhaps not so wise, based on the question that they came in and asked Herod, they actually say, something incredibly offensive. Um, they're actually presenting to Herod the fact that his leadership is under challenge. Um, Australians, more than anyone, know the excitement in a leadership spill. I mean, we've had about 20 in my lifetime at least, or that, that's what it feels like. It's exciting stuff, you know. A, a new leader is coming up. There's, there's some competition between the current leader and the successor who's coming to replace him. The leadership is unstable. Next thing, Herod's going to go on 60 Minutes and give an interview saying that everything is stable and fine and then his successor will come on 60 Minutes and give an interview that says, no, maybe everything's not okay in the kingdom of Judah. Well... We don't know if there are any um, journalists in Jerusalem at this time, but if there were, they would have been having a field day with this story. These foreign um, wise men come from a different country. They march on up to the king, the most powerful person there, and they say, we're here to meet the person that comes after you. So Matthew really gets his story off to a bang, doesn't he? he doesn't, it's not a boring introduct introduction to Jesus' life. This is straight into a leadership spill. And Herod and his claim to the throne is under threat. This is what it says in, in verse 3. 
when Herod the king, I like what Matthew does there, he, not just when Herod heard this, but he reminds you, when Herod, who was the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And fair enough, because as I said before, Herod was just an opportunistic military leader who happened to come to the throne and become the king of the Jews. But if you look back into Herod's family tree, you find that he's actually not an authentic, genuine Jew. He's got some Jewish blood in him, but he comes from a messy family tree. He's actually from Idumean descent. And he knows that his claim to the throne is shaky at best. And so to hear that there's a new king of the Jews being born is going to make him shake in his boots. And it says here, and all Jerusalem with him as well. So it seems like uh, it wasn't just a private thing between the, the wise men who came and talked to Herod privately. It seems like this went around the whole town and everyone heard there's a new king who has been born. And everyone was worried because when there's a leadership spill in the ancient Near East, they don't do leadership spills peacefully. They don't peacefully give the reins to the next person. In fact, Herod only became king of the Jews because he took the previous king that was sitting on the throne and handed him to the Romans. And two sources say that he was beheaded and one source says that he was crucified. No matter what is true there, um, the fact is that it wasn't a peaceful leadership turnover. Herod knows what happens to old kings here. They get killed. They get killed horrifically. The passing of kingship from one person to another almost always includes the shedding of blood. So all of Jerusalem understands that this is a tense time. If there's a new king, we might be looking at a civil war. We might be looking at, at more um, fighting within the city and fighting for the throne. So, in verse 4, it says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod wasn't an authentic Jew himself, but he knew enough about the Jews to know that they were expecting a, a Christos, a Messiah. Uh, we looked at this term last week. The word means someone that God anoints, and specifically in the Old Testament, it's used to point to the coming king who would sit on David's throne um, just and rule just like David did. So Herod knows that the Old Testament says that there's a new king coming, a new king who's going to be a lot like David. And Herod goes to the people and he says, well, what does the Old Testament say? And this is why you should read your Old Testament, because if there's ever a claim to your throne and a new Messiah in town, you have to read the Old Testament to know what it says about the Messiah. So the scribes answer him and they tell him in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, David was the ultimate king of uh, the people of Israel. He was always held up and heralded as the the kind of the, the pinnacle, the epitome of kingship. Now David came from the town of Bethlehem and in the Old Testament it said that the, the future king who was going to come was also going to come from Bethlehem and so that's what they say in Bethlehem of Judea for so it is written by the prophet in verse 6 and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod starts his scheming. He knows that there's a new king in town. He knows where that king is. 
Now he needs to find out how old that king might be. So in verse 7 it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He's trying to work out when did the star appear, so how old does that make this new king? You know, is this a a king that's been around for a long time? Um, Or is this still a baby? So he asks them this question. In verse 8, Um, It says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I don't know how wise these wise men were, but I hope that they could see through the lines there. Herod doesn't want to worship his successor. He doesn't want to peacefully hand over the reins. He has been a, a bloodthirsty king who has squashed any rebellion or anything that has come up against his kingship. He has no intention of going and worshipping this new king. He has every intention of destroying uh, the challenger to his throne. So, in verse 9, it says, well, first of all, look at this. Um, if, you can, if you're joining us through the live stream, you can see the map on the screen. So, Jerusalem is um, located in, in the region of Judea, and this is um, when Herod was king of the Jews. He was king over all of this region. And Bethlehem lies about 10 kilometers south of Jerusalem. So um, you can get there in a day. It takes a couple of hours, depending on how fast you walk or whether you run. Um, now you can drive from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and, and it's much quicker. So in verse 9, it says, And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This verse indicates that the star that they were seeing was not a a natural event. It seems to very clearly be a a miraculous um, event. And Matthew makes uh, no claims that that, um, the life of Jesus was all natural events. He's very clear that miraculous things happen. Um, And if that makes you uncomfortable, then the whole book of Matthew is going to make you pretty uncomfortable. So the star comes and rests over the place where the new king is. And in verse 10 it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They'd been on a massive road trip, and they'd finally come to the place where they were hoping to arrive at. And in verse 11 it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. So they come in and, and Mary is there and the child is there. Again, we're not exactly sure how old Jesus is at this stage. We get the idea from the story that he's somewhere under two years old. And they fall down and they worship this child. And they give him some gifts. They give him gold, which still today is a great gift to get people. They also get him frankincense and myrrh um, and I used to think, I thought that frankincense and myrrh were also metals, like gold. I thought it was like gold, bronze and silver. Um, But that's not what frankincense and myrrh are at all. Frankincense and myrrh are actually uh, pieces of resin that you get from trees that grow in Saudi Arabia. So they were very um, uh, exotic and very expensive in the time of Jesus. What happens is you get a tree that's growing, a particular tree, and you, you cut it 
and the tree sap comes out of it and then hardens and then you take that hardened tree sap and you burn it and it creates a really nice um, smell and perfume for you to use. Um, frankincense and myrrh are essentially the same, just coming from different trees and producing different smells. You can still buy frankincense and myrrh today. So the interesting thing about these gifts is that these are not traditional baby shower gifts. These are gifts that you would give to a king. These are royal gifts. So imagine that you're having, you know, you've just given birth to your child and, and you know, someone comes in, they give you a bunch of flowers. The next person comes in, they give you a, a nice teddy for the, for the kid. And the next person, you don't know. They've travelled from overseas. They've come to the place where you've given birth. They have come into the room, bowed down and worshipped your child, and then they give you incredibly expensive and exotic gifts that you would typically give to a king. I mean, you would be um, confused, to say the least, at this scenario. And I'm sure Mary had a lot of questions when all of this played out before her and she saw these, these people who she'd never met come to worship and to give gifts to her child as if he was the king. Then in verse 12, it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men go back home and they avoid that crazy King Herod and they go and, and return to their home country and leave Jesus and his mother and father behind. So what's this story about? What's this story really telling? Um, why does Matthew, of all of the things that you could say about Jesus' life, why does he include this, this strange peculiar, very odd story about Jesus. <clears throat> Hannah and I have been reading through Julie Andrews' autobiography this week, and Julie Andrews has a very interesting childhood. She grew up during the war years. She grew up uh, in London and also in the countryside in England. Now, Julie Andrews is a wonderful person. She's a fantastic actor. She's incredibly talented, incredibly capable. There are few people who doubt the, um, the brilliance of Julie Andrews. But when Julie Andrews was born, guess how many wise men from the East came and worshipped her as a baby and gave her gifts that were befitting of royalty? I don't want to spoil the book for you, but there are none, right? And you know why? Because Julie Andrews was a normal person. She was born just like the rest of us. She was just a normal baby. She grew into an incredibly influential, popular um, figure. But when she was born, she was just another baby. There was nothing that separated her from um, anyone else that was born at that time. The reason we are starting our study on Matthew's Gospel with this story is because Matthew is trying to tell you something in this story about the character and nature of who Jesus was. He's making it very clear here. Jesus is not just another moral teacher in the long list of moral teachers in history. Jesus is not just another great ethical example for you to um, include in a PowerPoint when you're studying ethics at university. He's not just, he's not a, a nobody that became a somebody. He was a somebody from day one. 
There was something special about him at day one. And if you ask people today, you know, what, what's the point of Jesus? You know, what was the point of his teaching? What was the main thing that he taught about? What was the, the central point that he kept coming back to? A lot of people would say love. Uh, Jesus taught a lot about love. That was his main thing that he taught about love. Or maybe forgiveness. Or maybe kindness. Uh, mercy. Uh, patience. Tolerance. Ethics. That kind of thing. Here's the thing. All of those he does teach on in some way. But that is not the key to his life and teaching. That's not the central theme of all that he is about. Matthew records the story of Jesus in a way that shows you exactly what the main point of his whole life was about. He uses the word love. Love comes up about 11 times in Matthew's Gospel. But Jesus... He talks about fruit more than he talks about love, if you do it by numbers. I'm not trying to take away from the golden rule. I'm not trying to take away from any of the great teachings that Jesus had on love. But if you read the Gospels, and the only thing that you get out of, especially the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus told us how to love each other, I'd suggest, you, I don't think you read the Gospel of Matthew. That's not the main point kind of like treating um, like treating Martin Luther King saying, you know, I love Martin Luther King, he's, he's a great example I, I've listened to a lot of the things he's said, um, he's very inspiring I try to live my life um, in, in a way that would, would be um, similar to Martin Luther King but I don't know what the um, civil rights movement is about, I, I can't get my head around that or, or saying, you know, I love Winston Churchill, he's a great speaker I've got his quotes up all around I, I totally follow his way of teaching and his way of life, but I've never heard of the Second World War, I don't know what that's about What is the key word, what is the key theme in Matthew You don't have to rely on me to find this out You just have to read the Gospel of Matthew for yourself and you'll find very quickly that there is one word that is used again and again and again it's used five times more than the word love is used and it is the word kingdom he also uses the word king 19 times in the gospel so put those together you've got over 70 times Matthew brings it back to a story about kings and kingdoms now Jesus talks about love, but only in the context of the kingdom. And Jesus talks about forgiveness, and he talks about mercy, but in the context of the kingdom. And if you've only taken those small bits and taken them out of context, I would suggest that perhaps you've misunderstood Jesus' main point about his teaching. Again, I'm not saying take my word for it. I'm saying read the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll find very quickly that on in almost every chapter, in almost every teaching that Jesus does, he relates it back to this theme of kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew 4 and verse 17. Matthew 4 and verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the main message. Repent, meaning stop what you're doing, think about it, and Think about turning around and walking in a different direction. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when we are looking at 
the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is not just presenting us with a story about a few random teachings of, of a good religious teacher. He's presenting us with this incredible clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And he's offering us an option to choose which kingdom do you belong to and who is the king in your life. And you just think about it. You know, um, would they have really put Jesus to death on the cross? Would they have really crucified him just because he said to love people a bit more? Just because he said um, that you should love people more than you're currently doing? Obviously, he was saying something that was much more rebellious and much more uh, confrontational than just a lovey-dovey, wishy-washy message. The problem, the reason why Jesus goes through this book being rejected, eventually being killed, the reason why is because the kingdom of God is always opposed to the kingdoms of the world. The way of, of Christ, the way that God does things, is always going to be not just different, but opposed, but opposite to the way that the world does things. The kingdoms of the world say that life is about getting ahead and becoming the greatest. And the kingdom of heaven says greatness comes with putting yourself underneath and serving people. The kingdoms of the world say love your friends and hate your enemies. And the kingdom of heaven says no, love your friends and love your enemies. The kingdoms of the world say, if someone hits you, hit them back. If someone attacks you, attack them back. If someone says something nasty about you, say something nasty in return. But the kingdom of heaven says, someone hits you, you show them that other cheek. The kingdoms of the world say, life is about being happy. Life is about jamming um, every bit of fun and happiness and pleasure into your life as possible. And the kingdom of heaven says, blessed are the persecuted blessed are those who are persecuted for doing the right thing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven kingdoms of the world say that the great people are rich and powerful and influential but Jesus when he's asked who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven he calls a, a child from the crowd and he says if anyone humbles himself like this child he will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven kingdoms of the world say life is better with money Jesus says, only with great difficulty will a, per will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is why Jesus starts his teaching with the word repent. Because he's saying, you can't keep walking in the ways of the kingdoms of the world. Don't keep ruining your life by continuing to live like the world does. Turn around, there's a new king in town, and you should serve him and join his kingdom instead. Matthew wants you to understand this very clearly. Even with the story of baby Jesus, it's a story of the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdoms of this world. Jesus isn't some boring religious leader who teaches some feel-good superficial trash. He's not some inspirational quote generator for you. He is presented as a king. And it is your choice whether you join his kingdom or whether you stay in the kingdoms of this world. Let's finish with Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. It says, He has delivered us, or saved us, or rescued us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That word domain can also be translated the power of darkness, or the authority of darkness, or the kingdom 
of darkness. He has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's our main point. And kids, if you're, if you're watching and you need to write down the main point, here it is. And adults, if you didn't pay attention, here's the main point. Here it is. I'll put it in a question. What kingdom are you living in? Or maybe we could say, who are you pledging your allegiance to? Who is the king of your life? Who is it that you serve? Jesus never came to be some um, sentimental, wishy-washy moral teacher. He's not just another great moral example. That's not the story Matthew tells. That's a story that we've made up in our heads. He's telling the story of a new king and a new kingdom. And you're invited into that kingdom. And it's not because you deserve it. I certainly don't deserve it. You certainly don't deserve it. You're invited because God loves you and values you. And if Jesus isn't the king of your life today, and if you haven't been transferred out of darkness and into God's wonderful kingdom, that new way of living, that new way to live your life, I want you to get in touch uh, in any way that you can. Contact us and we want to help you to discover how you can make Jesus the king in your life. Please let us um, help you make that decision today. We're going to finish with a song. We're going to finish with My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. In the um, songbooks, it's song 538, and we'll be singing the first, the second, and the last verse. So My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, song 538. Thank you.